It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, good evening. My name is John Forsyth. I'm the vicar of St. Jude, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you. If you're visiting us or if you're new, we are delighted that you can be with us uh, as we look at this fantastic letter that Paul writes to this church in Philippi. And I was very encouraged to hear about Charlie taking a year off from his IT job because it was 19 years ago today or this week that I took a year off my IT job to study at Ridley College for a year. Uh, And so, Charlie, no pressure, (laughs) but in 19 years, brother, I do hope that you are serving the Lord wherever he places you. Uh, And we are delighted to have a church that raises up people, to be a church that raises up people for gospel ministry. Uh, And uh, I'm delighted to see that we we keep aiming to do that. And uh, Charlie, uh, you're part of that that wonderful ministry of sending people out. If I was speaking to another person about uh, going into gospel ministry at one of our other congregations a few weeks ago, a young woman who's just finished up her theological study, and she was very excited because an opportunity had come up which seemed to suit her gifting and her passion for evangelism. And as I spoke with her after church, she could barely contain the excitement. She thought, this is it. God has called me to this. this is, I've known now why I've been studying and so she was going to meet with the organisation. And we prayed together that God would clearly lead her down that path if this was, her, this was her, uh, his will for her. Uh, and I promised to pray for her during the week. And then we caught up again the following week and it was evident straight away that, that something had not gone right. And she shared with me that this seemingly perfect opportunity had actually become a dead end. And what seemed like a wonderful gospel opportunity for her to use her gifts was actually disorganised and dysfunctional and actually not what was advertised. And she was disheartened. Not broken, but deeply disheartened. And understandably disheartened. And what I shared with her was actually what uh, you get when you look at Philippians 1, 12 to 26. That what is most important in our ministry... It is not the circumstance of our service, but the centre of our service. Not the circumstance of our service, but what sits at the centre. So let's have a look 
uh, at this text together where Paul um, speaks about this uh, from his own experience. This isn't just intellectual for him. It's real. Uh, Paul, by the way, as we saw last week, starts this wonderful letter with this really beautifully crafted pastoral prayer where he shares his love and affection for this church in Philippi in Macedonia uh, and he, he shares their love and affection as partners with him in the gospel. They're one of the few churches that gave money and prayer and support for Paul on his missionary journeys. And after that prayer, when we come to verse 12, we see Paul seeks to address a pastoral concern that this church has. His heart is for them, and so he addresses their concern. And what's the concern? Well, he says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, what has happened, as you can see, is uh, in the following verses, verses 13 and 14, Paul is in prison. He is chained to a guard, most likely in Rome, for preaching the gospel. Now, obviously, the Philippians, who have a great deal of affection for Paul, are worried for their friend. After all, if you had a friend who had been wrongfully arrested, you would understandably be anxious and wanting to uphold them in prayer and care for them. But there's also, friends, a bigger gospel issue at heart here. Because Paul is not just a friend. He is one of, if not the key ministry, uh, missionary sorry, and church planter, commissioned by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the gospel throughout the whole Mediterranean. And Paul's leadership skills were unmatched. His evangelism was extraordinary. The gospel growth has been astonishing. He stays with people. He loves them. He preaches the gospel. He plants churches. And so the big concern is not just Paul's unjust suffering, but actually, will this challenge the gospel being spread? You think about it, right? If you were to stop the spread of the gospel, if that was your goal, surely then locking up the best evangelist and missionary would be a really big part of your goal. That's, that's fantastic, right? Taking the best and fairest player off the field. Taking Don Bradman, Steve Smith, whoever it is, out of the Australian cricket team. And here he is in jail. What on earth is God doing? It seems contradictory to a gospel-centred uh, approach. And by the way, Paul's story is not unique. Uh, church history and our current context, we have thousands upon thousands of stories of Christians, including our own global mission partners, people who've left home and safety to proclaim the gospel, that they've left behind family and friends and made tremendous sacrifices. They've given up comfort and money and relationships. And when they get on the mission field, it's not one success after the other. It is one struggle after the other. It is tough times. It is closed doors. It is dysfunctional teams. It is lost opportunities. And many of our global mission partners bear deep scars for their service. And when we look at this, these kind of circumstances, it's, it's kind of hard not to think, hang on a second, is this God's church and God's mission? Why is ministry so hard? What is God doing in the midst of these broken and dark places? And how can Paul be so joyful? Notice how happy he is all the time. Is, is there something wrong with Paul? Has he, he got some of a loose grasp with reality? 
Is he just kind of indifferent to what's going on? Well, actually, no. When we look what Paul writes, we can see that what is foundational is not the circumstances of our ministry and service, but what's at the centre of our ministry and service. That's where Paul draws this deep joy from, in the midst of some pretty horrible contexts. Or to put it another way, the key is not where you serve, the key is who you serve. The key is not where you serve, but who you serve. And notice in verse 12, Paul doesn't lament his circumstances. Woe is me in prison, it's a terrible time, which I'm sure it was. He speaks how it serves the gospel. In verse 13, what's the result? Well, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ, or literally in Christ. He's joining Christ in suffering for the gospel. The whole guard now knows about the gospel. Uh, there's a bit of a, there's kind of a slight irony here. Uh, Paul now has a captive audience, <laughs> literally, because what would happen in the guard is uh, a, a someone who is waiting trial, which Paul is, they would be chained to one guard. So there'd be a manacle joining Paul to another guard, and every six to eight hours they'd swap the guards, right? So every six to eight hours, a new guard will come chained to the most persuasive evangelist who's ever lived. They never had a chance. One by one, they're being converted. And what's astonishing is you would expect Paul's imprisonment, his chains, to lead to an increase in doubt and anxiety and in fear with his co-workers, their leaders in jail. But no, it's the opposite. Verse 14, because of my chains... Most of my brothers have become less confident in the Lord. That's what we expect. No, it says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become more confident in the Lord. They've grown in their confidence in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Because of his chains, that's why. It's a bit like this. Imagine that that I get thrown in jail and then Mike gets thrown in jail and then Ali gets thrown in jail as well and and that 19-year prophecy comes to, come to fruition next week, and Charlie's now the vicar of St. Jude's. And it's, Charlie comes up and announces next week, look, guys, Mike and Ali and John have been thrown into prison for the gospel, and you guys go, oh, praise the Lord. Amen. Not because the staff have gone, I hope, but because of the gospel. It's, it's kind of that experience, which is very strange. So what's going on here? Why does Paul say these things? Well... Paul knows that who you serve is more important than where you serve. Time and time again, in spite of his awful circumstances, Paul rejoices. I mean, Paul's mission wasn't to the jail uh, and guards of a prison. That wasn't his mission. His mission was to plant churches and preach the gospel throughout the Mediterranean. But his circumstances have changed, but not the person he serves. And so we see here Paul resting in the sovereignty of God. And we see God working miraculous things in dark places. And uh, Matthew Henry, who was a 17th century Bible commentator, says on these verses, he says, here we see that only God can be an alchemist. Only God can be an alchemist. Now, by the way, alchemy is not as trendy as it used to be because we've got a bit more scientific knowledge. But back in the 17th century, people were, were convinced that you could somehow turn lead, worth, generally worthless, into gold, something priceless. 
And Matthew Henry says, you know, God is the only one who can turn the lead of imprisonment into the gold, uh, gold of gospel proclamation. And we see this actually throughout the story of the Scriptures. Joseph, thrown into a well, becomes a slave, yet through those dark and horrible circumstances, an entire nation is saved. And at the very end of Genesis, in 50, Genesis 50, 20, we read, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. From lead to gold. And so how is God going to turn the lead off Paul's circumstances into gold? And the reality is that Paul only gets a glimpse. He doesn't get to see the full outcome. And like Paul, we often don't see the big picture. We get hints, a glimpse. You know that when you're walking somewhere and you smell something really nice, a nice, there's a bakery somewhere nearby. Now you don't know what the bakery has, but you can, there's a hint of something good there. It's that kind of thing, just a hint. And so Paul rests in God's sovereignty. God's got to uncontrol. I don't understand it, but God does. And that's why he says at the second half of verse 18, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. What is terrible will turn out for deliverance. Well, that word actually literally means my salvation. It's the word salvation. It's less about being delivered from prison and more about Paul being confident in God's plan for salvation. Now, kind of externally, that means that he has confidence that God's big plan for salvation will work out. And internally, I think, too, it means that, that God will work out his salvation in Paul through his spirit. That Paul be refined and shaped by God's spirit to become more like the Lord Jesus. In other words, it refines him to be more like his saviour. Now, by the way, things are actually worse for Paul. That sounds pretty bad. In chains for the gospel. Those outside the church are seeking to limit the spread of the gospel, but there's also difficult problems within the church. There is toxic leadership and spiritual abuse happening in this church. We read in verses 15 to 17 that there are, there are some people in Philippi who are preaching the gospel out of love, which would have warmed Paul's heart. But notice too that there are others who are preaching the gospel, not out of love, but out of selfish ambition, out of rivalry and envy. Um, we don't really know who they are, but what's really clear is their purpose. Uh, it's not envy just wanting what Paul has. It's envy in the sense of wanting to take it from Paul. There's a jealousy and a selfishness and an arrogance. It's not what God's people are called to do, yet how does Paul respond? But what does this matter, he says? The important thing is that in every way, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, it's really important we understand what Paul is saying and, and what Paul isn't saying. 
Now, Paul is not, and let me say this, Paul is not, not, not excusing or indifferent to selfish, egotistical, spiritually abusive leaders who preach the gospel. This is called the halo effect, where we baptize the whole person because of one thing they're good at in spite of all these terrible character flaws. Yes, he's a bully and egotistical, but gee, he preaches the Bible well. Gee, she's rude and arrogant, but she's a fantastic evangelist. That's the halo effect. That's not what Paul is celebrating. And we have seen a litany of failed church leaders in our own broader church and throughout the history of Christianity. Now, Paul is not rejoicing in bad leadership. He's not excusing bad leadership. In fact, he has a lot to say about what good Christian leadership looks like in different parts of Scripture. It's about humility and gentleness and servant-heartedness. Read the pastoral epistles and it's, it's obvious. That is what gospel leaders are called, are called to. Now, what Paul is doing here is saying that even in the midst of terrible leadership, the gospel can still work wonders. Grace is unstoppable. Even in the darkest places and darkest times, God is still powerful enough to work things for his good. That is what gives Paul the ability to be joyful. In the midst of jail and in the midst of people bad-mouthing him, he still rejoices. Not because jail's good and not because poor leadership is good, but because in spite of those two bad things, the gospel and God's grace are unstoppable. See, Paul has worked out the key foundational thing to get right. What your life is based on. What is at the centre of your life. And he says it in, in verse 21. This is the kind of little key verse that holds this section together. He says, for to me, this is why I rejoice, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's Paul's motto. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. What what is your definition of life? What's the thing that makes life, life? Or the thing that you say, I have to have this in order to say, I'm alive, I'm living, I'm a person. This is who I'm meant to be. Because there are actually lots of answers that you could potentially put in that sentence. I think for many people, the answer is to live is pleasure. Experiences. That you have a job and earn money to get the things that give life meaning. But you take away those pleasures. Perhaps there's a lockdown. I don't know, maybe borders are closed. Just picking something random. Maybe we can't go out and are stuck at home and have to wear masks everywhere. If that's at the centre of your life, then you've actually lost your life at that point. Not just difficult circumstances, but your life is in ruins. Maybe for you to live is to be in control, to be organised, to be strong, to be tough, to have it all worked out. And then you become sick or face illness or somebody else you realise has more control than you. 
Is that a change in circumstance or is that a sense that you have lost your life? Or perhaps for you to live is achievement. Your career is giving you great blessings and and perhaps you're looking to leave a legacy or, or work with people but then you lose your job. Is that a loss of circumstances or is that really fundamentally shaken who you are? I think not all of us have a very coherent structure around that, but there are kind of things we kind of put in that spot. To live is... And often we don't know what we put in that spot until it's taken away. And tragedy often takes away the things that we think makes life, life. Because it's not just the circumstances of our life, but the very centre of who we are is shaken up. An example of this is our triple Olympian gold medalist, Stephanie Rice. Any relation, by the way? No. no. You should have said yes. She is now. That's right. Related by name. That's the best way to be related. You're not called Stephanie. Anyway, we, we move on. Uh, she was an extraordinary swimmer, won three gold medals, won other multiple silvers and bronze medals at World Champions, uh, retired at the ripe old age of 24. I don't think I'd even started work at 24. She's finished. Uh, and she couldn't wait for all the opportunities that awaited her, attractive, well-off, young woman, the whole future ahead of her. No more seven hours a day looking at a black line in the bottom of a pool. But what she found instead was loneliness and isolation. She sensed that she'd actually lost who she was. And she writes these words. This is in an interview she did recently. I thought, well... You know how goals, I know how to goal set and to work towards goals and achieve goals. So I just think, I just needed to think of the next big thing I'm going to do and then do it and then achieve it. But I don't know what it was actually, what it was that I was meant to do. Everybody is searching for some purpose in life and the big question of what I'm here for. I think because I didn't have that, it then brought me to the bigger question of who am I? What do I value? And what do I stand for? And she fell into quite a a deep depression and anxiety about not not just her career being over, but herself being over. She didn't know who she was. And and I think, although we're not all Olympic swimmers, I I think there's something in her experience that is is quite uh, uh, illuminating for our, particularly our Western culture, where we say that we get our identity and purpose from our work. That is a big danger for us as Westerners who are often well-educated, bright, engaged at work. And the problem is work can then become an idol. The problem is work can actually, cannot bear the burden that we place it when we actually place our identity in it. And I think this is just not the only reason, but I think this is playing into the reason why so many people experience burnout, which is a real characteristic of our age. Because there's a gap between our ideals about work and then the reality of our jobs. And that gap is actually getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We think that if we have this job, everything will be perfect. I remember speaking to someone when I was working, which was a long time ago, in the secular workforce in a bank. There were young guys earning uh, 23, 24, earning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, saying, oh, I, I felt like something more was promised. Why do I feel empty? I've got everything. And I think most people today are working hard, but 
actually, we're working less hours than people worked 200 years ago. Uh, we're working in much more safe conditions than people were 200 years ago. We're getting paid more. It's more comfortable. In fact, uh, just a funny aside is when we were fixing up the building at Carlton, we were looking at perhaps increasing the crypt, the room downstairs, uh, and uh, Heritage Victoria, God bless them, said, look, you can increase it, but you need to increase it using the same methods, building methods, that were used in the 1860s, which was uh, children with pickaxes. <laughs> now, as, as exciting as I thought that as being our new kids' church program, uh, we, we declined to do it, but that was considered normal. 18-hour, 16-hour days, heavy labour. And people were exhausted, but they were not burnt out. There's a big difference there. They were exhausted because they did not invest in their work as their identity. Now, they had other issues, and absolutely, but we had this thing called burnout, which is very much a modern condition, particularly in our Western culture. We believe our work is a path to self. And friends, that's a real danger that we all face. And it's just, it's just part of the language. Not uh, if I am a doctor, I am a lawyer, I am a teacher. Now, we, we know what you mean by that, but even our language gives us a hint. It, it's become so part of our identity. And so this ideal motivates us to work to the point of burnout because it promises that if you work hard, you'll have a good life. Not just a life of material comfort, but, but a life of social dignity, of moral character and indeed spiritual purpose. By the way, working hard is a really good thing and we need doctors and we need teachers and we, need, we even need lawyers. But to live is work will never work. See, the most important thing we can hold up is not to live is work or to live is family or to live is achievement or to live is control, but to live is Christ. To live is Christ. To put the Lord Jesus at the centre of everything we do. And because Christ is the centre, that means the circumstances can change and can be tough. I'm not saying everything will be easy. It can be extremely tough. But who you are, your security is firm because it's in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul explains as he goes on. For Paul, he says, to live is Christ, and whether I live or die... Now, they're pretty extreme circumstances, right? Death down one end and life at the other end. Either way is fine. Why? Because he's in Christ. He says in verse 22, If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. That, that's a good thing. Yet what do I choose? I don't know what to choose. I'm torn between the two, life or death. I desire to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you, so I remain in the body. See, Paul is saying, look, there are so many different options available, but the key one really is, am I in Christ? Death, life, pff, I'll work out what's best for those who I'm serving. I can stay and be with Christ, so I can die and be with Christ or stay and be with you. Either's fine because I live in Christ. And he goes on to write, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you, again your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. 
See, Paul's missionary career at this point is going down the toilet from a human perspective. He's in jail, generally not good. There's spiritual abusive leaders in the church, generally not good. But he continues with joy because his life is not going down the toilet. He is in Christ. Friends, can you see how it is far more important who you serve than where you serve? Can you see, it's far more important who is at the centre of your life than what is happening in the circumstances of your life. It's not that the circumstances of your life are not important. No, they are. But it's important to remember they are the circumstances of your life. Your life is with Christ. Which means you can cling to that no matter what the circumstances of your life are, whether they are up, and glorious, and happy, and joyful, whether they are tough, and exhausting, and depressing. Your life is with Christ. And what's more amazing is this one we serve, this one that we place in the centre of our lives, is the one who gave his life for you. He put you first. He gave up his life For you. So let us say boldly with Christ and rejoice in that truth that to live is Christ. Let me pray that we would do just that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this amazing letter where Paul, although in terrible circumstances, rejoices that the gospel is being proclaimed. Father, may we be like Paul and continue to rejoice, not in our circumstances, which may, which may be good but may be terrible. No, rejoice not in our circumstances but in Christ. May we place him at the centre of all we do and all we are. May we live out, as Paul does, that wonderful phrase, that for us, to live is Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand in response.